We welcome you to this period of Bible study. We hope you have your Bibles wherever you are, and we invite you to join us in this, uh, this service, this lesson, as, as we stream it. Uh, several guys have already mentioned the fact that this is an unusual circumstance, and uh, I'm, I'm just very uh, acutely aware of the fact that I'm speaking basically to an empty auditorium today. And it reminds me of something that I have uh, heard many, many times, and that is that uh, the church is what you have left when the building burns down. We've often talked about the fact that the church is the people, and it's not the building in which we meet. And I just want you to know how, how sorely that you are missed, and we're all longing for this, uh, this crisis to be over so that we can be back together again. I talked to a couple of fellow Christians from a distance of six feet yesterday, I assure you. And we were talking about how wonderful when all of this is over, when we can be back together and worship as God's people and have this building filled again. And that's something that, uh, although this is the first Sunday that we've actually missed and uh, have only had virtual services, but we're really looking forward to the time that we can all be back together as a family. Uh, this is normally the time when somebody would stand up and read our text. And since they're not here, we're going to go to Romans chapter 116. I hope everybody has their Bible wherever you are in your living room or whatever, and that you will turn to Romans 116. Although it's a very short verse, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's God's power to save them that believe. And I want us in this lesson to really reemphasize and, and have impressed on our hearts the fact that God's word is in fact that. It is God's power to save the world. And we need to always remember that that is good news. That's the approach that I want to take this morning. Uh, that is the lesson title, and some of you may know that from having looked at the announcements online, is good news for a change. And I think most of us are exactly at that point when we would really, really like to hear some good news. Problem with that is that I need to kind of set that over in relief against all the bad news that we've been hearing. And so I just, I went online this morning, and this comes from USA Today's website. And this is just some of the bad news. Of course, the most prominent bad news that I saw online this morning was this. Coronavirus continues to spread. Now 14,000 have been diagnosed nationwide. We're hearing, we're hearing that constantly. In fact, you can't get away from that particular piece of bad news. Also, in connection with that, there's this story. Stores close, recession looms. More bad news. This is probably... A really horrible piece of bad news to some of you. Day 10 without sports. Now don't start crying, guys, but that's a piece of the bad news that was on USA Today's edition this morning. 30 cute puppy photo. No, wait, how did that get in there? Um, here, here's a piece of bad news. Nation continues to stockpile supplies. Uh, good luck finding toilet tissue or ground beef in the stores and on and on you could go and you can make your list even longer. It almost makes you want to fall on something sharp when you read all of that, that bad news, doesn't it? You know, I could walk under a snake's belly with my hat still on. You get that low when you read nothing but bad news. So my question for you today is, aren't you ready for some good news? Personally, I am sick to tears with the crime, the crises, the hate, the negativism that permeates our society. I need to wash my ears out, and I need to filter my heart with some really good news for a change, and so I invite you to do that with me for the next few minutes. If you feel the same way, then I want you to consider the following facts. Number one, please remember and appreciate that the word gospel itself means good news. I mean, we forget that sometimes, don't we? Some folks think that, that preachers are people who are specifically employed to keep people from having a good time. And I want you to know that's not true, but that's the impression that some have. 
And the problem is that some of us who preach get to believing that ourselves. But we are primarily purveyors of good news. And those who preach and those who listen to preaching need to always remember that. We forget sometimes that the gospel is the original good news. When will we get it on straight that people are lost, not just because they reject the gospel, but because they're in sin? I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about it. If a man's drowning in a river and somebody throws him a lifeline and he refuses the lifeline, of course he's doomed. But why is he doomed? Is it just because he refused the lifeline? Well, undoubtedly, he could have been saved. His life could have been spared if he had accepted it. But more fundamentally, he's doomed because he's in the water drowning and not just because he refused the lifeline. And we need to remember that fact when folks try to get us to believe that people who never hear the gospel are going to be okay in the day of judgment. They'll be saved in their ignorance. Think about that. If that were the case, and they're lost only when they hear the gospel and then reject it, then we ought to leave them alone. You see, according to that line of reasoning, they're saved in their ignorance. If that's the case, then we need to cease all evangelistic efforts and we need to disband the church. If you just leave people alone, they remain ignorant and they're going to be saved in their ignorance. There's only one problem with that theory, of course, and that is that it's false to the core. That theory makes the gospel God's power to condemn and not God's power to save. No, people are lost because they're in sin, and not just because they have rejected the only means of salvation. You see, the gospel didn't condemn them. They already stood condemned. They only sealed their doom by refusing the divine lifeline of God's redemptive plan. I think we violate that principle in any number of ways. I know that I've heard some people say that we ought not to teach or preach on certain issues because if people will remain ignorant on those subjects, then, then they're okay in their relationship to God. And it is true that, that an awareness of God's standard can create emotional gift because that awareness is, is the moment when we are brought to the recognition of to what degree that we have violated his standard. Paul even talks about that at length in the book of Romans. But I want us to know that we aren't sinners only at the point at which we were made aware of our sin. No, we were sinners at the moment we violated God's set law, whether we did that knowingly or unknowingly. In fact, John in his first letter, 1 John 3, 4, says that sin is a transgression of the law of God. That word transgression literally means a stepping across God's fixed boundary. So the moment we violate, we transgress God's law, we become sinners in need of salvation. We're not sinners only at the moment when we hear the gospel and decide tragically to reject it. You know, we all know about John 3.16. We spent a little bit of time last Sunday morning looking at the very next verse. John 3.17 says, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Get that. The world was already lost. Jesus didn't condemn humanity by revealing this new divine standard. No, the world was condemned in sin when Jesus came. I've said all that to remind you that the wonderful story of love is, in fact, good news. In fact, it is really, really good news. We need to appreciate that. We need never to forget that. We need to re remind ourselves of that reality when we're tempted to not share the gospel with, with people because we don't want to bring them down. No, the Bible says they're already down. They're condemned. They're lost. We need to teach them the truth and lift them up. 
Remember, Jesus said in John 12 and verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto myself. That means that those of us who are his children, his ambassadors, as we walk in this world for Christ, that we are also in the lifting up business. We're not in the tearing down business. Sin is what tears people down. That's what destroys lives. The gospel builds them up and restores their lives to spiritual wholeness again. In fact, Paul, this by the way is recorded in Acts 20 verse 32, as he's talking to some Ephesian elders, said, Now I commend you unto God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. So through the dark, foreboding, pessimistic, sinful clouds that hover over our world, the glorious rays of the gospel come shining through. And those of us who are God's people ought to be thankful every day for that reality. Remember this, the word gospel is defined even in our English dictionary like this. The good news concerning Christ, the kingdom of God, and salvation. And the Bible explains the word in Romans 10, 15 in these words. These are the inspired words of Paul. I remind you how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. Watch this next phrase. And bring glad tidings of good things. Think about that. Glad tidings of good things is the way Paul describes the gospel message. What a contrast that is to this awful news that you and I are hearing every day and that we've grown accustomed to hearing. Looking at the good news of the gospel is somewhat like examining the many facets of a, of a beautiful diamond. No wonder the gospel in the gospel accounts has been referred to as the pearl of great price because that's what it really is. It's just that valuable. So we've established a foundation. I want to share with you some three pieces of good news this morning before we end this study. Fact number one, God loves you. We need to hear that from time to time. We need to be reassured of that fact. And yet, here's the problem. When you look at the religious world as a whole, we've heard that the fact that God loves us so much, sometimes we've kind of grown hardened to the concept. We've heard televangelists piously intone, God loves your brother, and so do I, till till it almost makes us want to gag. But we need to never lose sight of the fact that, that the God who created us and who continues to sustain us does, in fact, love us. That is the essence of this book. All 66 books can be boiled down to the love of God. Now, bear in mind, God did not have to be a benevolent God. He could have been a malevolent God. He could have had his own nefarious intentions and motives. He could have created us for his own selfish purposes, but he is not and he did not. When we read scripture, we're reminded of that. In fact, James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So everything that's good comes from God. We need to appreciate that fact. And then John writes this, he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's 1 John 4 and verse 8. And then in verses 9 and 10 of the very same chapter, he goes on to say, and this is the love of God that was manifested or demonstrated toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's a fact that we can carry with us into eternity. God loves us, and he wants every one of us 
to be saved. That should warm our hearts. He wants all men to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth. Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4. So good news, peace number one, is the fact that God loves us. Fact number two is that God will forgive you. The Old Testament says this, Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Who is a God like you, Micah wants to know, who pardons iniquity, passes over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not, watch this carefully, this is giving us an insight into the heart of God himself. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. That's the ideal, the intentional will of God, that we never sin. His circumstantial will is that since we have sinned, that we will make it right with him. We will follow his instructions and become his friends again so that our sins can be cast into the depths of the sea. It's interesting. If you like to do word studies in Scripture, Here's one that involves five words that appear over and over in the New Testament. And if you'll, if you'll trace out how these words are used, you'll see that each of these words, sometimes used interchangeably as if they're synonyms, are in fact words that have a specific meaning. Here's what I mean by that. The Bible employs a number of different terms in Scripture in connection with the redemptive process. For example, you find the word justification. Someone has aptly said that that word justified really means that God is acting just as if I had never sinned. But justification is a legal term. It means that we've been exonerated. We're no longer held guilty for our transgressions, for our sins. God has justified us. And then there's the word purification. That's a ceremonial term. And those who converted from Judaism to Christianity would certainly be familiar with that term. They knew what it meant to go through purification ceremonies. Reconciliation is a relational term. In fact, the word reconciled in Scripture literally means to make friends again. And then there's remission. That's an accounting term. That means that something has been taken off the accounting books, off the ledger of God's memory. There's, we're no longer going to have to be charged for it. God will never remember that sin again. And then the fifth and the last term is the word sanctification. And that involves proximity. Sanctify means to be set apart for God's specific purpose and in a viable relationship with God. So it's relational. And we can really appreciate that word, I think, in a, in a time where we're told to, to, to maintain social distancing and to stay six feet away from everybody. Well, sanctification is when we can be brought again in close communion with God. So that means spiritually a lot more than the other thought could mean physically. Now, don't miss this. Each of those five terms is intended to impress us with the absolute forgiving nature of our merciful God. His mercies and His compassion are new every morning. But the problem with that is, when we began thinking about God's forgiveness of us, we almost immediately began to think about our relationships with other people. We have problems forgiving others. Sometimes we even want to seek retaliation against others, and only after that retaliation has been experienced are we willing to talk about forgiveness. So if we have problems forgiving others, then we have problems also comprehending how God is so willing to forgive us. How can God act as if we've not sinned? Allow me to illustrate that point. 
Ron Owens writes the following bulletin article. Ron says, I'll never forget an experience from my 16th year of life. I'd been licensed to drive only a few months earlier and was working with my brother on a paper route. Everything went well until one June morning. Before the sun came up, I backed out of the driveway where we turned around on a dead-end street. I scraped a telephone pole, which was hidden in a tall, grown-up hedge, and it left an obvious impression on the front fender of the car. The events that followed left an even deeper impression on me. He said, I didn't want to wake Dad up to tell him about the accident. It was still early when we got home, and it was Saturday, and it was Dad's one morning to sleep in. Finally, I heard my parents moving around in their bedroom. I'd rehearsed a number of ways to tell them about the car, and nothing seemed too good, and so I decided to just go in and tell them what had happened and to get it over with. Mom was straightening up the room, and Dad was trying to get awake. I told them that there had been an accident with the car, and Mom said, I knew something was wrong by the way you boys were looking at the car when you, when you got home this morning, and parenthetically, Ron asked, added, Mom's never sleep, you know. Ron continues by saying, my dad, who had driven a, a milk delivery truck when he was 16 and had to finish school late due to the war, just turned over in bed, but never got up when I, when I broke the bad news. Are you boys all right? He asked. Yes, I told him. It's just the car fender that doesn't look too good. And he said, he said it can be fixed, can it? And I told him that it could. And he replied, well, you can just pay to have it fixed then. And he turned back over and went back to sleep. The following, the following week, the car was repaired. Owens then writes in conclusion, how many times in our lives do we become anxious about mistakes or sins that we've committed? How much time and effort do we, do we use up worrying about the situation? Christ came to the cross and asked the question, to which he already knew the answer. It can be fixed, can it? The good news of the gospel is that God is still in the forgiving business. He still forgives sins. The debt for all sin has been paid for all time on the cross. And we may have to pay the price of humiliation and painful consequences. Still the fact remains that anything can be fixed. We don't have to give way to, to despair. God can take, the, he can take the stain away and make us as spiritually pure as the driven snow. With God, nothing is impossible. Everything is fixable. The Bible says this, Isaiah 1 and verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And I'm just telling you this morning, if you're already a child of God, isn't it wonderful to know that when every one of our sins are laid bare in the day of judgment, and we will be, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in our bodies according to what we've done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Every one of our sins are going to be laid bare in judgment. Well, when that happens, isn't it good news to know that God would in essence say, I, I distinctly remember having forgotten that. And if you're not a child of God this morning and you're listening in, we appreciate so very much your being a part of our audience. But isn't it wonderful to know that at any moment in your life, 
You don't have to wait till the invitation is sung in a formal worship service. At any point in your life, the Lord, the Lord can come to you as you obey him and become his child. And he can say to you in a very personal way, anything in your life can be fixed. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's Psalm 32 verse 1. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 verse 12. And as the old black spiritual used to say, and ain't that good news. The final fact that is good news that I want to share with you this morning is that if you're a child of God, heaven awaits you. That is an immutable, unmitigated fact from the lips of the Lord himself. He told his disciples, preparing them for his imminent death, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Watch this carefully. He then said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you into myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Consider what someone has written and called the Traveler's Guide to Heaven. I'll share it with you, then we'll be through. Here are the accommodations to the Traveler's Guide to Heaven. The accommodations are arrangements for first-class accommodations have been made in advance. As we just read, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, too. We don't have to worry about accommodations. Jesus has already prepared those for us. There's a name in, in heaven with your, mail, with your name on the mailbox already if you're his child. Passports. Persons seeking entry will not be permitted past the gates without proper credentials and having their names registered with a ruling authority. Here's the Bible for that, Revelation 21, 27. There shall in no wise enter to heaven anything that defiles, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question isn't, is your passport current? The question is, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? What about departure times? The exact date and time of departure has not been announced. So travelers are advised to be ready to leave on short notice. Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put into his power. None of us know when we're leaving this planet. We have to be ready at all times. Immigration notice, all passengers are classified as immigrants on our journey to heaven. Since they are, are taking up permanent residence in a new country, the quota therefore is unlimited. Hebrews 11.16 says, Now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, for he has prepared for them a city. What about luggage on our trip to heaven? No luggage whatsoever can be taken. The Bible assures us in 1 Timothy 6.7 and other places, we brought nothing into this world, and it is absolutely certain that we will carry nothing out. What about reservations? Well, the good news is, booking is now open. Apply at once. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. If you've been thinking about becoming a child of God, there's no better time than right now to actuate what you've been thinking about. It's time to quit deciding and it's time to start acting and become his child this very day. Note also with this uh, Traveler's Guide to Heaven that group rates are not available. Each person must book that trip individually. Everything that I've been trying to share with you this morning, I think is beautifully encapsulated in the four lines of a song that we often sing. The lyrics go like this. There is a land that's fairer than day, and by faith we can see it afar. For the Father waits over the way 
to prepare us a dwelling place there. I guess the best news of all is that salvation is the gift of God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. Persons longing for salvation in the New Testament realize that, that, is, that there's something that all of us have to do in order to be able to receive that salvation. And, and whenever you open the book of Acts, the book of conversions, every time you, you see people realizing and recognizing and acknowledging the fact that they needed to do something in order to appropriate the forgiveness of God. Let me give you three quick examples in Acts, the second chapter, on the day of Pentecost. Those people ask in verse 37, men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, what do we do in order to make this right? We, we kill the Son of God. We kill the Messiah. We've nailed him to the cross. We want to know how to make that right. And so they ask, what must we do? And then in Acts 9 and verse 6, Saul of Tarsus, later to be the Apostle Paul, asked that same question. What do I need to do? And he was told to go into the city. And there the Lord would send him someone who would tell him what he needed to do. Notice, in neither of those cases, when those people ask, what is it that I need to do in order to be saved? And to appropriate God's forgiveness, they were never told there's nothing that you can do. It's all the work of God. No, God's work is what makes our salvation possible. But that doesn't mean that there's no response necessary on our part. And then in Acts 16, verse 30, the Philippian jailer asked the same question. What must I do in order to be saved? So in the operation of faith, God always leaves something for man to do. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9, teaches among many other things that God's mercy always requires man's obedience. God's good news is designed to save men and women from sin for an abundant life now and for everlasting life in the world to come. And folks, I am proud to be with you this morning and to announce that the news just doesn't get any better than that. You can claim that at any moment in your life that you desire to do so. Ray Miller wrote the lyrics that I want to end this lesson with. George Beverly Shea was famous for having sung this song entitled, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Let me share the lyrics of a rather brief song with you, but it's a meaningful song. The words go like this, I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hands than to be the king of a vast domain or to be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. We thank you so much for joining us online for this worship service and for this study. And we pray that you've been blessed and benefited. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And after this prayer, we're going to... Uh, Consider this worship service ended. You can do whatever you want to do with your families uh, if you want to extend the devotional period. But we're going to end this session with a prayer. If you'll bow with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, even in times of trouble and crisis, for your manifest love, for the way that you take care of us every day, the way you always have, the way you're doing now, and the way you promised to take care of us in the future. We claim that through your Son, Jesus, and we're grateful for it. And Father, help us to, to look for things in this crisis that will help our faith to, to grow stronger and not be weakened. Father, we know sometimes these kinds of crises are things that can point us back to you and help us to recognize and appreciate our utter dependence upon you and your sustenance and your grace 
and your mercy. And for those things, we are incredibly thankful. We thank you so much for all the individuals and for all the families that have joined us online this morning for this worship. Father, we're looking forward to the time, and we pray that it will be soon that we can be back together as your family. But right now, Father, accept our worship as it is sincerely given. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.